Well, you've had the paper, and I'm assuming uh, everyone has uh, read it, so I'm not going to uh, repeat it. I'm going to pull out a few points and perhaps tell a couple of stories that uh, didn't get into the paper. I mean, I think the first point I want to make is that, uh, a bit like the man who was speaking prose all his life and didn't realize it, uh, uh, I think most people in Oxford uh, didn't realize they were members of the Oxford School of Industrial Relations. Uh, and uh, it was I think probably until Jeremy Bugler wrote that piece in uh, 1960, whatever it was here, thank you, 68, uh, that we all sort of thought, uh, yes, yes, there is a group here. And uh, certainly, uh, as I say, when I was deciding where I would go to do my graduate work, it was a very, very uh, uh, thin decision between whether I'd stay in the States or whether I'd come here. So, I mean, the first point is, uh, perhaps building on what Robert said, uh, there was a group of people here, uh, the only ones I knew uh, from Canada in the 60s, late 50s, would have been Clegg and Flanders. Uh, the rest were, uh, at least to my eyes, uh, invisible uh, overseas. Now, the second point uh, I'd want to pull out, because uh, I think it is really important, is what was the Oxford School. And of course, Hugh himself, uh, towards the end of the day, wrote a paper. Uh, in fact, I had um, an unpublished copy, which he'd scribbled on the top George, you might be interested. Uh, it was going to appear in some Italian journal. I don't know, uh, Willie, if it ever did, but uh, it did appear as a Warwick uh, paper. And he stressed three characteristic pluralism. And as he said himself, of course, that hardly distinguishes it, because uh, almost everybody was a pluralist. But what it did do, I think, was rule out the Marxists. I mean, for example, uh, I don't think Richards here today had trouble getting back uh, from uh, Denmark, I think, where he's at a conference. But Richard would have never seen himself uh, as a member of the Oxford School. And I think Alan Fox, by the 1970s, would not have seen himself as a member of the Oxford School. So pluralism was, I think, a necessary condition, but not a sufficient condition. I mean, the second characteristic, of course, Hugh called it egalitarianism. Uh, but in a sense, it was a, a belief in uh, the, if you like, moral force of trade unionism and collective bargaining. Uh, they saw trade unionism and collective bargaining as being the main way in a social democracy of producing greater uh, equality uh, of not just opportunity, but also uh, of outcome. But I think, and Hugh himself stresses this, what really distinguishes the Oxford School, and why I would quibble a little bit with uh, Peter, I'm not sure where Peter's gone, uh, at the back there, about just listing everybody who was in Oxford at the time, and uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, they were in Oxford, but as Hugh himself said, uh, and it's on page uh, three of my paper, uh, it was the message that came out of Flanders' productivity that the structure of collective bargaining has a powerful influence on the contact of industrial relations and plant on the behavior of trade unions and manager, and the initiative in changing that structure lies with management. I mean, that was, I think, the key point that really uh, differentiated. And um, in a sense, it's why Hugh also says the Oxford School did not transfer to Warwick, because the new generation there, people like Eric Batstone, Paul Edwards, uh, Bob, a whole range of people, didn't necessarily sign up 
uh, to that uh, theoretical construct. Uh, in other words, collective bargaining and trade unions were not just a moral force for Hugh and Alan, it was also an explanatory variable. And when you think of the book that Hugh wrote, uh, his one big uh, venture into theory, if you like, uh, it was all about that. And even if you take my work, which was very econometric on trade union growth, et cetera, uh, well, if I say so myself, the only interesting bit, perhaps the, certainly the most interesting bit, was the non-econometric bit. It was when you began to explain the differences between the four countries. And what explained it? The structure of collective bargaining. At least that's what uh, alleged, and I would discuss that with you. And I think that's terribly important if you're saying, what was the Oxford School? And it's why I would disagree with Robert, although I'll give him a chance to read that and see if uh, he comes around. Well, why Oxford? Well, I think, uh, well, uh, why Oxford? I mean, uh, industrial relations, even if you don't go back to the webs, as uh, Brian was suggesting, or you don't go back to um, GDH Coal, it really did start uh, in 49 here in Oxford. And uh, I think it really, I don't like the hero approach to history and have spent most of my life uh, trying to avoid it, but I think it's impossible to explain why Oxford without stressing the huge importance of Hugh Clegg and Alan Flanders. I think Hugh is even more important in this context uh, than Alan. And uh, Hugh was a remarkable individual, um, not just in the sense that he wrote almost a book a year uh, and is the only person I know that could draft uh, a whole chapter on the train from London uh, to Oxford, hand it to a secretary, uh, Lynn, I remember her name, uh, to type it up, etc., and find uh, very, very uh, little. But we all know about Hugh the scholar. We know about Hugh the politician with a small p. Perhaps only those of us who studied with him know uh, about Hugh uh, the man, and uh, he was a remarkable, remarkable figure. And uh, Beer, as Willie has said in one or two things, played an important point in it, uh, in it all. In fact, I don't know how we ever got our PhDs and whatnot. Uh, there was so much of it. But Hugh would spend many, many nights here in college. Uh, one of the most famous incidents was we had a very, very good Australian woman. There was one woman in uh, <laughs> the group who was here, and uh, after a bit of of, uh, drinking one night, challenged Hugh to swim the pond, which you see there. And uh, the two of them did so, causing great damage to the flowers, etc. And uh, it was very fortunate that Norman Chester regarded Hugh, I think, as the son he never had. Uh, but things like that, there was uh, ping pong. I don't know if it's still there, Andrew, in the very bottom thing. There were just tons of beer drunk there. Hugh was there almost every night, uh, would cycle home up to Boar's Hill, come in in the morning, with a few scratches, he'd obviously come off his bike. Uh, and uh, croquet would be done in the lawn here again. You know, I still remember Philip Williams, uh, who was the great French scholar, of course, also the biographer of Gateskill. And uh, we were all making so much noise, and uh, Philip was a bachelor don and lived right above the seminar room. And uh, all of a sudden, we saw the lights go on, etc. Hugh was never at a loss. As Philip came out, Hugh went over and said, Philip, we were just coming up to get you and ask you to join us, uh, and uh, completely, uh, completely disarmed us. But he was generous too. I mean, going to Warwick, uh, you know, one of the biggest punch-ups you have on team research, and as somebody was saying, there was very little of it in these days, authorship. Hugh laid down a rule at Warwick. Anybody connected with a project shared the authorship. 
The only complaints I ever had, and I see Linda sitting here, is from the more senior people in the unit who were usually burdened with finishing the project and writing it up and getting letters from Australia and all this from the junior people who'd gone on to other things saying, when is the book coming out? Because uh, they wanted to have their name in print, etc. Uh, Hugh never, never uh, uh, quibbled about things like that and uh, he therefore uh, was quite a leader. And uh, when I think about war, about Nuffield, I think uh, Hugh, uh, George is here, uh, David is gone, but I think Hugh would have been probably the most powerful fellow in the college. Uh, I'm speaking from memory, I was saying this to Andrew. There were about 40 students in the 60s. I recall Hugh had nine of them. Now, Hugh didn't actually fit into politics. He didn't fit into, well, politics and sociology, economics, the groups. He was almost marginal in terms of the groups. He had a quarter of the students in labor history or industrial relations. Very, very powerful figure. And I'm convinced that Alan wouldn't, well, I'm, not, I'm convinced that none of us would have been at Nuffield if it hadn't been uh, for Hugh. He just had that. And then finally, really, uh, oh, one thing about Richard Hyman. Yes, when Hugh left, uh, Richard is one of the few people, Alan Fox is the other, who actually became more left-wing as he got older rather than the reverse. And in fact, just to ruin Richard's reputation since he's not here, he's the guy who recruited me into the Labour Party in 1964. Uh, <laughs> He, he was the local uh, secretary to the party, and uh, when Hugh left, the two of us were um, uh, directed by all the people in the college who were Hugh's friends to get a drinking mug on which we inscribed very imaginatively, uh, um, uh, work is the curse of the drinking classes, and uh, presented it to Hugh. Well, finally, in terms of uh, the Royal Commission, uh, that was the other major, major thing. And uh, as I said in the paper, Hugh Riley says that perhaps Allen's membership of the Labour Party, uh, the fact that, as John Lloyd said, uh, Hugh is uh, with all of these very senior sort of pluralist employers who believed in collective bargaining, trade union leaders, what have you, uh, they just dominated the positions. Willie said, George, what were your terms of reference when Bill McCarthy asked you to do research paper six? I thought to myself, there weren't any terms of reference. Uh, Bill came along one day, I assume he'd been prompted by Alan and Hugh, and said, George, I understand you're working on white collar unionism for your PhD, uh, or DPhil. And I said, yes, yes. And uh, he said, I gather it could lead to the conclusion that uh, the state should promote union recognition. I said, yeah, that's the way it's going. He said, well, will you do uh, a research paper six, which became, of course, trade union growth and uh, recognition. It, it was all uh, very, very informal. And uh, I will uh, perhaps end on that with a footnote. I actually looked up, the very first year I made a salary was 1967 here, and uh, they gave me 200 quid uh, for producing this. And uh, I thought, well, actually, that's a rather small sum now. I plugged it into one of those updating things. It's worth 3,000 pounds. I, uh, I was actually well paid. And Andrew, my salary at the time in 1967, uh, and I assume you might want to reintroduce this, was 1,600 pounds. Uh, as a research fellow, uh, but I plug that into the same mechanism, 26 grand. Uh, it's probably what they earn today, isn't it? Something of that, uh, that order. Finally, uh, I mean, as far
far as the legacy, I think it did come to an end in 69. Uh, but I think what did carry on was the empirical tradition of grounded research in which labor institutions uh, in collective bargaining was a key. And lots of people who would not say they were part of the, uh, the uh, Oxford School, nevertheless, their work, Eric Batstone would be a classic example, illustrated that. Thank you. Thank you.